0: This is a message by Pastor Mark Fox at Antioch Community Church in Elon, North Carolina. For more information about the church, go to antiochchurchNC.org. Let
1: me turn to our reading this morning. It is Mark chapter 8 verses 34 to 36, Mark 8. 34 to 36. I'll give you just a second to get there. I'll comment that I did bring my large print Bible. I used to look at the large print, and I said, well, that's just silly. Who needs large print? That's for old people. I am here. I have a giant print at home, and every time I pass by, it waves at me, and it says, soon. Mark chapter 8, verses 34 to 36. And calling the crowd to him... Father God, we thank you for the upside down logic that our Lord gives us. Because the world would say that we should always seek our own. That's the secret to success. But the Lord says that we should seek Him, that we should follow after Him. And His path was a path to a cross, but that we should take it up daily. Father, that's heavy. That's a standard that I don't meet. I don't know if anyone here does. But it's also a standard that you call all of your children to. And you wouldn't call us unless you also empower us. So, Father, we ask that you would strengthen us to lay ourselves down, to take up the cross of Christ, and to live in ways that please you. We ask in Jesus' name. Please bless uh, the pastor as he brings the word today.
2: Amen.
0: Welcome, Antioch Community Church, those who are here with us, those who are online. Doing things a little differently today, that's why I have a handheld mic, because I'm the first of three speakers. Uh, we are going to, today, today and next Sunday, we're going to be going through what we're calling our mission statement, foundation of values and beliefs. Um, and just by way of reminder, there's not going to be any bright lights and lightning strikes from heaven, I don't think. And there's not going to be any new revelation. It's just a reminder of... Who we are, and the elders have been working on these statements for the last uh, several months. Who we are as a church, where we're going, where we're headed. So the goal is to go over this, uh, this mission statement this morning, part of it. Three of us are going to speak, and each of us have been allotted of ten minutes, and my time has not started yet. Because I'm, I'm introducing this. As you came in this morning, you should have received one of these. If not, there are probably some on the credenza, and there may be some we could pass around. I don't know. But in this statement, and it still needs a little bit of editing, but in this, uh, this brochure, there are the mission statement and statement of foundation of values, statement of beliefs. So that's going to be our guiding star. The Word, of course, is our guiding star, and this is based on the Word as we move forward as a church as we've always done for the last 36 nearly 37 years so let me show you the mission statement and we will work through this a little bit at a time we exist to pursue God practice righteousness and produce disciples of Jesus Christ in a community of grace and truth who love and serve with joy so I've been tasked with the first phrase we exist to pursue God now you can start my timer Augustine said, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. We exist, saints, to pursue God. And we pursue God if and only because he has put that urge in our hearts. Right? Jesus said, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. So what does it mean to pursue? Interesting first definition in the Oxford American Dictionary for pursue is this. To chase in order to catch or kill. Now, we certainly want to have that measure of intentionality and energy and oomph in our pursuit of God. But I have good news. We don't have to catch Him. In fact, He has already caught us, right? And we are His, and He is ours. But I love what A.W. Tozer said. He wrote the classic, The Pursuit of God. He, He said, to have found God and still to pursue Him is the soul's paradox of love. In other words, our relationship with God is not static. It's not completed. It's not a completed experience. It's a dynamic, lifelong relationship. The pursuit of God involves a deepening understanding, a growing intimacy, and a continuous commitment to spiritual growth. We do run after him, pursuing him, in our desire to know him, to hear him, to learn from him, to walk with him, to faithfully be fully his. The psalmist said it like this, Psalm 42. As the deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. So our hearts are restless and our souls are thirsty because we were made for God, to know him, to be like him, to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. And I love what, what John wrote in his first epistle, 1 John chapter 3, verse 2. John wrote, we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. That, that's the end result of our pursuit of God. That's, that's what we're going for. That's the target, to see him and be like him. As you heard in Mark 8 as Jeremy read it, Jesus invited any of his disciples to deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. To pursue Christ then means that we have to first stop pursuing ourselves. That's the first thing. Stop pursuing. He said deny yourself. The Greek word for deny here means refuse, repudiate, disown someone or something. It's the same word Jesus used in Matthew 26 when he looked at Peter and he said, you will deny me three times. Before the cock crows, you will deny, you will refuse, you will repudiate, you will disown me, Peter. Three times. And we go, how how can this same man who said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God, how could he disown Christ at that moment and say, I never knew the man? You know why? Because the heart is so easily given to self-protection. We we don't want to take up our cross. Oswald Chambers said, All heaven is interested in the cross of Christ. All hell is terribly afraid of it. While men and women are the only beings who more or less ignore its meaning. The call to take up our cross indicates an absolute claim to our allegiance to to Jesus Christ as a disciple. Absolute surrender of all that one is, all that one has. All of our resources given gladly to the Lord. Every now and then we might sing that song. It's been a long time because it's hard to sing "All to Jesus, I Surrender." Oh, it's easy to sing as far as the melody. Hard to sing the words, right? People living in the first century, though, didn't sing it with blink, without blinking. They they understood. James Edwards wrote that they they understood that their adversity under Nero was not a sign of their abandonment by Christ, but rather of their identification with and faithfulness to. The way of Jesus himself. When they sang all to Jesus, I surrender. They meant all. Life, limb, reputation, property. Billy Graham used to say salvation is free. But discipleship, that will cost you everything. But as Jesus said, the one who tries to save his life will lose it. But the one who takes up his cross, dies to his self-will, his agenda, will find the life he was made for. Jesus went on to say, it's interesting, after he says, take up your cross, deny yourself, take up your cross daily, and follow me. After that, he says, for what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Why would Jesus say that right after the call to discipleship? (laughs) I think because he knows that one of the greatest temptations we face as human beings is to substitute a pursuit of material gain, stuff, money, and status... For the pursuit of God. I pray through a list of prayers uh, every morning uh, by Tim Challies. They were written for pastors and church leaders. But really good for anybody to pray. And so uh, it's part of my, my daily prayer time. But, but, but this one comes up one day a week. It comes up with this heading. Not a lover of money. And that comes from the qualifications for elders in 1 Timothy 3. The prayer goes like this. I pray that I would not make material possessions, the ambition of my life. That I would refuse to pursue financial gain above eternal things, preferring to store up treasure in heaven than on earth. That I would not sacrifice my family or my spiritual health on the altar of my job. That I would not be greedy or covetous, but instead be generous and quick to give to those in need. That I would give a generous portion of my income to the church and rejoice when doing so. You see, Jesus said we cannot serve God and money. We cannot pursue God if our heart's greatest treasure is financial gain or material wealth. So then Jesus says, come, follow me. Deny yourself, take up your cross. Come, follow me. Which when Jesus says, follow me, he uses the present imperative, which indicates continuous action. He's not saying, follow me till you don't feel like following me. Follow me on Sundays, but the rest of the week, it's on you. Do whatever you want. Follow me continuously. What does that mean? Well, he gives us some clues in John. John 8, 12. I'm the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, will have the light of life. So following Jesus means walking in light. Discipleship is learning more and more how to live in the light and eschew, stay away from the darkness. John 10, 4, he said, When he has brought out all his own, he's talking about himself, the great shepherd. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. So following Jesus means learning to hear his voice, learning to quickly flee from the voice of the enemy. And then in John 12, 26, he says, If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. So following Jesus means serving him with all our hearts. And that means, in practical terms, serving his people, this body. You know, in the New Testament understanding of a disciple, it was, it was understood that the disciple tried to be exactly like the master to the point when you saw a disciple, you really saw the master right? Point two, you know, the clone. They tried to walk like them. They tried to talk like them. They tried to gesture like them. So when the world sees a disciple of Jesus Christ running a business, he ought to be able to say, that's how Jesus would run that business if he were running it. And when the world sees a disciple teaching a classroom, they ought to be able to say, that's how Jesus would teach that classroom if he were teaching those students. That's how Jesus would build that house. That's how Jesus would sell those products. That's how Jesus would take care of his customers. That's how he would raise his children or manage his household. That's what a disciple looks like. Well, that's just a glimpse at what it means to be a disciple, just a glimpse at what it means to be one who pursues God. I'll close with this quote, and then I'll pray A.W. Tozer's prayer. And These come from the pursuit of God. The man who has God for his treasure has all things in one. Many ordinary treasures may be denied him, or if he is allowed to have them, the enjoyment of them will be so tempered that they will never be necessary to his happiness. Or if he must see them go one after another, he will scarcely feel a sense of loss for having the source of all things he has in one, all satisfaction, all pleasure, all delight. Whatever he may lose, he has actually lost nothing. For he now has it all in one, and he has it purely, legitimately, and forever. Let's pray. Oh God, I have tasted your goodness, and it has both satisfied me and made me thirsty for more. I am painfully conscious of my need of future grace. I'm ashamed of my lack of desire. Oh God, the triune God, I want to want you. I long to be filled with longing. I thirst to be made more thirsty still. Show me your glory, I pray, that so I may know you indeed. Begin in mercy a new work of love within me. Say to my soul, rise up, my love, my fair one, and come away. Then give me grace to rise and follow you up from this misty lowland where I have wandered so long. In Jesus' name, amen.
2: So for the second phrase in the mission statement, Practice righteousness. that start with the words of God at least three times in Leviticus, including chapter 19, verse 2. God says, you shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. And Jesus, in Matthew five thirteen, after he started his sermon on the mount with the Beatitudes, immediately said this, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. A city set on the hill cannot be hidden. Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. God calls us to be holy, or that word in Hebrew literally means to be set apart. So he says, whatever's going on over here, I want my people to be over here separate, set apart, distinguished. From that stuff that's going on over there. Jesus' word picture helps us grasp this a little better. And it adds the concept of standing out. He said a city setting on a hill is noticeable as different among the rest of the backdrop. Right? Have you ever looked at a city that's on a hill? Right? You see shrubs, trees, shrub, trees, buildings, color, lights, shrub, trees, shrub. It stands out. You see it. If you're in a dark room. It just takes one candle wick. You'll notice just one candle wick lit. It cannot go unnoticed. So what do we mean by practice righteousness? In most simplistic words, we're called to be different in a positive way in this earth. Righteousness is defined as being right in a moral way, virtuous. The English definition of holy is to be spiritually excellent. Righteousness requires transferring our right thinking into right acting or behaving. Paul said it this way in Philippians. He said, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Righteous living is marked by a separation from sinful behaviors. The early church distinguished themselves from other religious members of society by abstaining from sexual immorality and abstaining from sacrificing to idols. And for much of the history of America, Christians have had the unique advantage of having righteous customs and traditions being the dominant behaviors in our land. But now... It's different. Americans, we have entered the territory where the majority of Christ followers in the world have always existed. And that is having a societal structure that incentivizes anti-biblical thinking. And one that punishes those who try to follow biblical principles. Speaker of the House Mike Johnson just in the past month has been publicly ridiculed as they dug up seven years ago he took his daughter to a purity dance at his church. Hopeful parents are now forbidden from adopting children in certain states such as Oregon for affirming that there are only two genders and one gender is assigned at birth and is immutable. If you believe that line of thinking, then you are disqualified from being able to adopt children in the state of Oregon today. The ways and trends of people living in our country are drifting further away from being virtuous. Now, some people do this intentionally. They hate God, and they want to live in loud opposition to his lordship. Now, some people are going along to get along. Whatever the popular movie is, whatever the popular song is, whatever the popular book is, whatever all their friends are doing, they just want to do it as well. They want to fit in without fully understanding the full ramifications that our choices have on our spiritual well-being. So separating ourselves from sinful choices seems only to be increasingly harder in our society today. And it's going to take a concentrated effort by those of us wanting to choose what is morally right over what is convenient for satisfying our sinful desires. Society is moving in a real big hurry to reject the ways of worshiping God and embrace the ways of worshiping self. It is important for our testimony to the world and our faithfulness to Christ for us to still choose obeying God and his ways. We use the word practice because we're not going to live perfectly. If you're looking for perfect righteousness, then that's somewhere else, not here. One definition of practice means to regularly perform an activity or skill in order to improve. So it's within this context that all of us are to practice righteousness. Hopefully we're on a trajectory where our will and our desire for what is right and just is increasing and improving. So just like with musical instruments, academic subjects, sports, we become better in those areas with time spent practicing them. This concept stood out to me years ago as I traveled to Ethiopia with Feed the Hunger founder J. O. Williams. We were with a big team, and we had a general practice doctor from the Outer Banks, and he was with a few people that had volunteered to be his triage, although they didn't have much medical experience, but we were on a bus, and we left our guest house, and we dropped off Dr. Owens and his team uh, for the day, and we went further to dedicate some churches and to have some discipleship conference and training with people, and then when we were finished those activities, we came back, and on our way back, we picked them up, and I'll, I was, I'll never forget. JL said to Dr. Owens, Well, Dr. Owens, did you make anybody feel better today? He said, No, I just fixed all the mistakes I made yesterday. And he said, What are you talking about? He said, You're a doctor, you're supposed to make people well, not sick. And he said, That's why it's called the practice of medicine. We learn from our mistakes in order not to repeat them. We celebrate victories over sin, not to be defeated by our sins. We will fall, and we will see others fall. But the mark of a real pursuit of God is one who gets back up after falling. May we give ourselves the grace necessary to forgive ourselves when we sin, not to dwell in our sin, but to humbly repent and forsake our sin. And may we give those that we walk with on this journey in this church, room for them to also periodically fall at their practice of righteousness. When we become aware of them falling, let's help them up and encourage them to what is good and right. Now let's be perfectly clear. We practice righteousness in order to please God. If we can set our motivation for living on pleasing God, then the natural fruit of that, the natural outcome is going to be doing what is righteous, For those of us genuinely changed by God or saved by God, pleasing God is soul-satisfying. It's even life-giving. The desire to please God because of all that God has done for us drives us towards consistently making decisions that bring glory to God rather than serve our own interests. And making decisions that bring glory to God leads to performing actions that bring glory to God. And that is what righteousness is about bringing glory to God. So what do we mean by practice righteousness? We aim to live in a way that is separate from sin and fulfills Jesus' desire that we would be the light of the world. We aim to be the ones who choose the pure and virtuous way, even if we are the only ones living that way. It is a practice because we're not going to get it perfectly correct. We're going to fall down, but we will keep going in the direction of improving in our obedience to God. And why is practicing righteousness important? Because it pleases God. Living as a light for God proves our devotion to him. We are trying to please God not to earn his favor. We are glad to please God because we have received his favor through His Son, Jesus Christ's atonement, for our sins on the cross. So that's improve together in practicing righteousness.
3: Speaking of practice, so practicing the art of public speaking, even in a safe, beautiful setting like this. Hopefully I won't have to repair tomorrow with mistakes today, so... but. Uh, I was given the section to produce disciples of Jesus Christ. And I was thinking, you know, the first two sections there, you can do by yourself. You can do individually. You can do them together in a group setting. Um, But producing disciples of Jesus Christ requires engagement. It requires action. It requires you to go and engage the community that you're in. And so I broke it down into two sections with some different questions. Uh, First, what what was it like to produce disciples in the biblical time? And then the second is in today's time. But first I want to tell a story that I heard recently. John Riggins, a running back for the Washington Redskins, was asked a question. uh, They won some Super Bowls back in the 80s when I lived near Washington and was a Redskins fan. About if the Redskins of their time could beat the commander's of this time and he thought about it and he said yes I think you know we could and he said but I think it would be close you know seventeen or something like that and and the guy said wow that's pretty close why why so close he said well most of us are 65 or 70 or 75 years old so same story's been told about Michael Jordan and all that right it'll make sense at the end so, in Matthew 28, Jesus, when he was speaking to the disciples, and he gave them the great suggestion, um, no, no, not, not the, great, the great commission, he said, and Jesus came and spoke to them saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father And of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So the first category of in biblical times, what is the definition of a disciple? The lexicon New Testament uh, standard defined it as a learner, a pupil, or an adherent. It requires at least two people willing to work, one to teach, one to learn. R.C. Sproul added to that, one who directs their mind toward a specific knowledge and conduct. Jesus' 12 disciples, were, they were identified in Matthew 10. Simon, Andrew, James, John, Philip, Bartholomew, Thomas, Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Canaanite, and Judas Iscariot. They all lived, walked, talked, learned, and spent a lot of time with Jesus. Well, how did one become a disciple in the New Testament times? Uh, Jesus called them, and they obeyed, and they followed him. It was a calling. We read that in the Gospels. They stopped their current jobs, and they journeyed with Jesus. In John 8, 31, Jesus said, If you abide in my word, you are my disciples, and you will know the truth, and it will set you free. Uh, How did one disciple others in biblical times? Well, we're talking about specifically disciples of Jesus Christ. Jesus used everyday life to teach, and he did it with intention, many times using parables. He spent a lot of time with them. Again, R.C. Sproul, he wrote that disciples are people who have committed in their hearts and minds to follow the thinking and conduct of the master forever. It's a lifelong experience. One does not graduate until we get to heaven. We know the examples of Paul and Timothy in the Old Testament, Eli and Samuel, Moses and Joshua, Elijah and Elijah um, are good examples of discipleship that we can read. Uh, So changing over to today's world, how does this apply to us today as individuals and as a congregation? So what is a disciple today? Well, the definition hasn't changed, and it never will. Uh, world history is ripe with examples in the philosophy world. You know, Homer discipled Socrates, who discipled Plato, who discipled Aristotle, who discipled Alexander the Great. Uh, Christianity itself is dependent on contemporary discipleship extending from generation to generation. Now, we do know that God can and does speak directly to people, but most of us who've been... We uh, can think back to someone when, when someone engaged us and discipled us through person-to-person activity. Luke 14, 27. To be a disciple of Jesus Christ, one must be able to handle rejection and suffering without changing direction and obedience. We heard it in the verses that Jeremy read. Um, leaving all, must uh, bear Jesus' cross, leaving all to follow Jesus. In John 13, 35. All will know you are my disciples if you love one another. It's the same model. It's a relationship. Teaching, it hasn't changed. How does one become uh, a disciple today? That way hasn't changed either. It's through a calling from Jesus Christ and then obedience. Again, John eight thirty one. First, they must abide in my word. In John nine twenty seven, the blind man whom Jesus healed is chastising the Pharisees, and he calls himself a disciple. He believed and obeyed. Uh, The C.S. Lewis Institute describes discipleship as, quote, a calling to every believer. The Great Commission does not give the option of passing that responsibility to someone else. It is the way the church has continued through centuries. Jesus has no plan B. It has been neglected for so long that there's a crisis in discipleship in the American church. Few professing Christians are living as disciples of Jesus, and fewer are making disciples. So how does one disciple others in today's world? It's, again, the model hasn't changed. It's through relationships. The local church is a fantastic place for this relationship to thrive. The Gospel Coalition has a wonderful example of how to disciple. It begins with uh, initiating a relationship in which you teach, correct, model, and love. You teach. To teach, you must first be grounded and and, uh, knowledgeable in the totality of Scripture. To correct, it's usually done one-on-one in your discipleship relationship, but it can be uh, more brought in if if necessary. Three, model. Our lives are walking, living testimony. It should reflect the love of Jesus, his mercy, grace, long-suffering, and truth, and love. Colossians 3.16 says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, Teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. And also in Hebrews 10, and let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together. So to disciple, it requires diligence and humility. You can get rejected bearing one another's burdens. Uh, It can be difficult and it must be done with respect. You can invest a great deal of time with someone and then they wind up moving, transferring away somewhere. Again, the local church is a fantastic venue for this to take place. So in the study of discipleship, we see a common and obvious aspect. And that is, you have to be one in order to do the work of a disciple. It's it's sort of a a no-brainer. As we here at Antioch are serving God faithfully... Discipleship is an integral part of our life. It has to be. And we practice it in many ways here already. Uh, you all do it at home. Do a wonderful job of it at home. Fathers discipling their sons and daughters. Mothers discipling their sons and daughters. Older siblings discipling younger siblings. Also intentionally forging relationships with a new Christian. Spending time with them. Here's a great opportunity uh, that we see singles engaging in this Way. Church services, home group, even in some cases, Ironman uh, group can be a, a discipleship experience. Women's ministry teams and other women's groups, older women mentoring younger women of faith, it's a great example of discipleship. So, my challenge to myself and to you is to find someone to disciple or to disciple you. You know, back to our Mr. John Riggins' story. Oh, for us older grayheads to continue to have that confidence that we could still be used by God, right? All the way up to our final breath. As was said, we don't graduate until we die. So we have the directive in the Great Commission to continue this throughout our life. Christianity offers a safe place to do this. And God will multiply the blessing, and he will be glorified. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this uh, first portion of our mission statement covering. Thank you for uh, a great um, opportunity, Lord, to serve you as a church, to grow together. And, uh, Lord, we, we give you all the glory and all the honor. In Jesus' name, amen.
0: Thank you for listening to this message. Antioch Community Church meets every Sunday morning at 10 a.m. at 1600 Powerline Road in Elon, North Carolina. For more information,
1: please go to antiochchurchnc.org.